Chapters 8 and 9 of The Golden Bough. This is a LibriVox recording. All LibriVox recordings are in the public domain. For more information or to volunteer, please visit LibriVox.org. Recording by Monsbru, Helsingfors, Finland. The Golden Bough by Sir James Fraser. Chapter 8 Departmental Kings of Nature. The preceding investigation has proved that the same union of sacred functions with the royal title which meets us in the king of the wood at Nemi, the sacrificial king at Rome, and the magistrate called the king at Athens, occurs frequently outside the limits of classical antiquity, and is a common feature of societies at all stages from barbarism to civilization. Further, it appears that the royal priest is often a king, not only in name but in fact, swaying the sceptre as well as the crozier. All this confirms the traditional view of the origin of the titular and priestly kings in the republics of ancient Greece and Italy, at least by showing that the combination of spiritual and temporal power, of which Greco-Italian tradition preserved the memory, has actually existed in many places. We have obviated any suspicion of improbability that might have attached to the tradition. Therefore, we may now fairly ask, May not the king of the wood have had an origin like that, which a probable tradition assigns to the sacrificial king of Rome and the titular king of Athens? In other words, may not his predecessors in office have been a line of kings whom a republican revolution stripped of their political power, leaving them only their religious functions and the shadow of a crown? There are at least two reasons for answering this question in the negative. One reason is drawn from the abode of the priest of Nemi, the other from his title, the king of the wood. If his predecessors had been kings in the ordinary sense, he would surely have been found residing, like the fallen kings of Rome and Athens, in the city of which the sceptre had passed from him. This city must have been Aricia, for there was none nearer, but Aricia was three miles off from his forest sanctuary by the lake shore. If he reigned... It was not in the city, but in the green wood. Again, his title, King of the Wood, hardly allows us to suppose that he had ever been a king in the common sense of the word. More likely, he was a king of nature, and of a special side of nature, namely the woods from which he took his title. If we could find instances of what we may call departmental kings of nature, that is, of persons supposed to rule over particular elements or aspects of nature, they would probably present a closer analogy to the king of the wood than the divine kings we have been hitherto considering, whose control of nature is general rather than special. Instances of such departmental kings are not wanting. On a hill at Bomma near the mouth of the Congo dwells Namvuluvumu, king of the rain and storm. Of some of the tribes on the upper Nile we are told that they have no kings in the common sense, the only persons whom they acknowledge as kings are the kings of the rain, Matakudo, who are credited with the power of giving rain at the proper time, that is, the rainy season. Before the rains begin to fall at the end of March, the country is a parched and arid desert, and the cattle, which form the people's chief wealth, perish for lack of grass. So, when the end of March draws on, each householder betakes himself to the king of the rain and offers him a cow that he may make the blessed waters of heaven to drip on the brown and withered pastures. If no shower falls, 
the people assemble and demand that the king shall give them rain, and if the sky still continues cloudless, they rip up his belly, in which he is believed to keep the storms. Amongst the Bari tribe, one of these rain kings make rain by sprinkling water on the ground out of a handbell. Among tribes on the outskirts of Abyssinia, a similar office exists, and has been thus described by an observer. The priesthood of the Alphai, as he is called by the Barea and Kunama, is a remarkable one. He is believed to be able to make rain. This office formerly existed among the Algids and appears to be still common to the Nuba Negroes. The Alphai of the Barea, who is also consulted by the northern Kunama, lives near Tembadere on a mountain alone with his family. The people bring him tribute in the form of clothes and fruits, and cultivate for him a large field of his own. He is a kind of king, and his office passes by inheritance to his brother or sister's son. He is supposed to conjure down rain to drive away the locusts. But if he disappoints the people's expectation, and a great drought rises in the land, the Alphai is stoned to death, and his nearest relations are obliged to cast the first stone at him. When we passed through the country, the office of Alphai was still held by an old man, but I heard that rain-making had proved too dangerous for him, and that he had renounced his office. In the backwoods of Cambodia lived two mysterious sovereigns known as the King of the Fire and the King of the Water. Their fame is spread all over the south of the great Indo-Chinese peninsula, but only a faint echo of it has reached the west. Down to a few years ago no European, so far as is known, had ever seen either of them, and their very existence might have passed for a fable, were it not that till lately communications were regularly maintained between them and the king of Cambodia, who year by year exchanged presents with them. Their royal functions are of a purely mystic or spiritual order. They have no political authority. They are simple peasants, living by the sweat of their brow and the offerings of the faithful. According to one account, they live in absolute solitude, never meeting each other and never seeing a human face. They inhabit successively seven towers perched upon seven mountains, and every year they pass from one tower to another. People come furtively and cast within their reach what is needful for their subsistence. The kingship lasts seven years, the time necessary to inhabit all the towers successively, but many die before their time is out. The offices are hereditary in one or, according to others, two royal families, who enjoy high consideration, have revenues assigned to them, and are exempt from the necessity of tilling the ground. But naturally the dignity is not coveted, and when a vacancy occurs, all eligible men, they must be strong and have children, flee and hide themselves. Another account, admitting the reluctance of the hereditary candidates to accept the crown, does not countenance the report of the hermit-like seclusion in the Seven Towers, for it represents the people as prostrating themselves before the mystic kings whenever they appear in public, it being thought that a terrible hurricane would burst over the country if this mark of homage were omitted. Like many other sacred kings of whom we shall read in the sequel, the kings of fire and water are not allowed to die a natural death, for that would lower their reputation. Accordingly, when one of them is seriously ill, the elders hold a consultation, and if they think he cannot recover, they stab him to death. His body is burned, and the ashes are piously collected and publicly honored for five years. Part of them is given to the widow, and she keeps them in an urn, 
which she must carry on her back when she goes to weep on her husband's grave. We are told that the Fire King, the more important of the two, whose supernatural powers have never been questioned, officiates at marriages, festivals, and sacrifices in honor of the Yan or spirit. On these occasions a special place is set apart for him, and the path by which he approaches is spread with white cotton cloths. A reason for confining the royal dignity to the same family is that this family is in possession of certain famous talismans, which would lose their virtue or disappear if they passed out of the family. These talismans are three, the fruit of a creeper called Kui, gathered ages ago at the time of the last deluge, but still fresh and green, a rattan, also very old but bearing flowers that never fade, and lastly a sword containing a yun or spirit, who guards it constantly and works miracle with it. The spirit is said to be that of a slave whose blood chanced to fall upon the blade while it was being forged, and who died a voluntary death to expiate his involuntary offence. By means of the two former talismans, the water king can raise a flood that would drown the whole earth. If the fire king draws the magic sword a few inches from its sheath, the sun is hidden, and men and beasts fall into a profound sleep. Were he to draw it quite out of the scabbard, the world would come to an end. To this wondrous brand, sacrifices of buffaloes, pigs, fowls, and ducks are offered for rain. It is kept swathed in cotton and silk, and amongst the annual presents sent by the king of Cambodia were rich stuffs to wrap the sacred sword. Contrary to the common usage of the country, which is to bury the dead, the bodies of both these mystic monarchs are burnt, but their nails and some of their teeth and bones are religiously preserved as amulets. It is while the corpse is being consumed on the pyre that the kinsmen of the deceased magician flee to the forest and hide themselves, for fear of being elevated to the invidious dignity which he has just vacated. The people go in search for them, and the first whose lurking place they discover is made king of fire or water. These, then, are examples of what I have called departmental kings of nature. But it is a far cry to Italy from the forests of Cambodia and the sources of the Nile. And though kings of rain, water and fire have been found, we have still to discover a king of the wood to match the Arician priest who bore that title. Perhaps we shall find him nearer home. End of chapter 8 Chapter 9 the worship of trees, one, tree spirits. In the religious history of the Aryan race in Europe, the worship of trees has played an important part. Nothing could be more natural, for at the dawn of history Europe was covered with immense primeval forests, in which the scattered clearings must have appeared like islets in an ocean of green. Down to the first century before our era, the Hercunian forest stretched eastward from the Rhine for a distance at once vast and unknown. Germans whom Caesar questioned had travelled for two months through it without reaching the end. Four centuries later it was visited by the Emperor Julian, and the solitude, the gloom, the silence of the forest appears to have made a deep impression on his sensitive nature. He declared that he knew nothing like it in the Roman Empire. In our own country, the wheels of Kent, Surrey, and Sussex are remnants of the great forest of Anderida, which once clothed the whole of the southeastern portion of the island. 
Westward, it seems to have stretched till it joined another forest that extended from Hampshire to Devon. In the reign of Henry II, the citizens of London still hunted the wild bull and the boar in the woods of Hampstead. Even under the later Plantagenets, the royal forests were sixty-eight in number. In the forest of Arden, it was said that down to modern times a squirrel might leap from tree to tree for nearly the whole length of Warwickshire. The excavation of ancient pile villages in the valley of the Po has shown that long before the rise and probably the foundation of Rome, north of Italy was covered with dense woods of elms, chestnuts, and especially of oaks. Archaeology is here confirmed by history, for classic writers contain many references to Italian forests which have now disappeared. As late as the 4th century before our era, Rome was divided from central Etruria by the dreaded Ciminian forest which Levy compares to the woods of Germany. No merchant, if we may trust the Roman historian, had ever penetrated its pathless solitudes, and it was deemed the most daring feat when a Roman general, after sending two scouts to explore its intricacies, led his army into the forest and, making his way to a ridge of the wooded mountains, looked down on the rich Etrurian fields spread out below. In Greece, beautiful woods of pine, oak, and other trees still linger on the slopes of the high Arcadian mountains, still adorn with their verdure the deep gorge through which the Ladon hurries to join the sacred Alphos, and where still, down to a few years ago, mirrored in the dark blue waters of the lonely lake of Peneus. But they are mere fragments of the forests which clothed great tracts in antiquity, and which, at a more remote epoch, may have spanned the Greek peninsula from sea to sea. From an examination of the Teutonic words for temple, Grimm has made it probable that amongst the Germans the oldest sanctuaries were natural woods. However that may be, tree worship is well attested for all the great European families of the Aryan stock. Amongst the Celts, the oak worship of the Druids is familiar to everyone, and their old word for sanctuary seems to be identical in origin and meaning with the Latin nemus, a grove or woodland glade, which still survives in the name of nemi. Sacred groves were common among the ancient Germans, and tree worship is hardly extinct among their descendants at the present day. How serious that worship was in former times may be gathered from the ferocious penalty appointed by the old German laws for such as dared to peel the bark of a standing tree. The culprit's navel was to be cut out and nailed to the part of the tree which he had peeled, and he was to be driven round and round the tree till all his guts were wound about its trunk. The intention of the punishment clearly was to replace the dead bark by a living substitute taken from the culprit. It was a life for a life, the life of a man for the life of a tree, at Uppsala, the old religious capital of Sweden, there was a sacred grove in which every tree was regarded as divine. The heathen Slavs worshipped trees and groves. The Lithuanians were not converted to Christianity till towards the close of the 14th century, and amongst them, at the date of their conversion, the worship of trees was prominent. Some of them revered remarkable oaks and other great shady trees, from which they received oracular responses. Some maintained holy groves about their villages or houses, where even to break a twig would have been a sin. They thought that he who cut a bough in such a grove either died suddenly or was crippled in one of his limbs. 
Proofs of the prevalence of tree worship in ancient Greece and Italy are abundant. In the sanctuary of Esculapius at Kos, for example, it was forbidden to cut down the cypress trees under a penalty of a thousand drachms. But nowhere, perhaps, in the ancient world, was this antique form of religion better preserved than in the heart of the great metropolis itself. In the Forum, the busy centre of Roman life, the sacred fig tree of Romulus was worshipped down to the days of the empire, and the withering of its trunk was enough to spread consternation through the city. Again, on the slope of the Palatine Hill, grew a cornel tree which was esteemed one of the most sacred objects in Rome. Whenever the tree appeared to a passerby to be drooping, he set up a hue and cry which was echoed by the people in the street, and soon a crowd might be seen running helter-skelter from all sides with buckets of water, as if, says Plutarch, they were hastening to put out a fire. Among the tribes of the Finnish Ugrian stock in Europe, the heathen worship was performed for the most part in sacred groves, which were always enclosed with a fence. Such a grove often consisted merely of a glade or clearing with a few trees dotted about, upon which in former times the skins of the sacrificial victims were hung. The central point of the grove, at least among the tribes of the Volga, was the sacred tree, besides which everything else sank into insignificance. Before it the worshippers assembled, and the priest offered his prayers. At its root the victim was sacrificed, and its boughs sometimes served as a pulpit. No wood might be hewn, and no branch broken in the grove, and women were generally forbidden to enter it. But it is necessary to examine in some detail the notions on which the worship of trees and plants is based. To the savage the world in general is animate, and trees and plants are no exception to this rule. He thinks that they have souls like his own, and he treats them accordingly. They say, writes the ancient vegetarian Porphyry, that primitive men led an unhappy life, for their superstition did not stop at animals, but extended even to plants. For why should the slaughter of an ox or a sheep be a greater wrong than the felling of a fir or an oak, seeing that the soul is implanted in these trees also? Similarly, the Hidatsa Indians of North America believe that every natural object has its spirit, or to speak more properly, its shade. To these shades some consideration or respect is due, but not equally to all. For example, the shade of the cottonwood, the greatest tree in the valley of the upper Missouri, is supposed to possess an intelligence which, if properly approached, may help the Indians in certain undertakings. But the shades of shrubs and grasses are of little account. When the Missouri, swollen by a freshet in spring, carries away parts of its banks and sweeps some tall tree into its current, it is said that the spirit of the tree cries while the roots still cling to the land, and until the tree falls with a splash into the stream. Formerly the Indians considered it wrong to fell one of these giants, and when large logs were needed, they made use only of trees which had fallen of themselves. Till lately some of the more credulous old men declared that many of the misfortunes of their people were caused by this modern disregard for the rights of the living cottonwood. The Iroquois believed that each species of tree, shrub, plant and herb had its own spirit, and to these spirits it was their custom to return thanks. The Wanika of eastern Africa fancied that every tree, and especially every coconut tree, 
as its spirit. The destruction of the coconut tree is regarded as equivalent to matricide, because that tree gives them life and nourishment as a mother does her child. Siamese monks, believing that there are souls everywhere, and that to destroy anything whatever is forcibly to dispossess a soul, will not break a branch of a tree, as they will not break the arm of an innocent person. These monks, of course, are Buddhists. But Buddhist animism is not a philosophical theory. It is simply a common savage dogma incorporated in the system of an historical religion. To suppose, with Benfrey and others, that the theories of animism and transmigration current among rude peoples of Asia are derived from Buddhism, is to reverse the facts. Sometimes it is only particular sorts of trees that are supposed to be tenanted by spirits. At Gribalj, in Dalmatia, it is said that among great beeches, oaks, and other trees, there are some that are endowed with shades or souls, and whoever fells one of them must die on the spot, or at least live an invalid for the rest of his days. If a woodman fears that a tree which he has felled is one of this sort, he must cut off the head of a live hen on the stump of the tree, with the very same axe with which he cut down the tree. This will protect him from all harm, even if the tree be one of the animated kind. The silk cotton trees, which rear their enormous trunks to a stupendous height, far outtopping all the other trees of the forest, are regarded with reverence throughout West Africa, from the Senegal to the Niger, and are believed to be the abode of a god or spirit. Among the Ewe-speaking people of the slave coast, the indwelling god of this giant of the forest goes by the name of Huntin, trees in which he specially dwells, for it is not every silk cotton tree that he thus honors, are surrounded by a girdle of palm leaves, and sacrifices of fowls, and occasionally of human beings, are fastened to the trunk or laid against the foot of the tree. A tree distinguished by a girdle of palm leaves may not be cut down or injured in any way, and even silk cotton trees, which are not supposed to be animated by Huntin, may not be felled unless the woodman first offers a sacrifice of fowls and palm oil to purge himself of the proposed sacrilege. To omit the sacrifice is an offence which may be punished with death. Among the Kangra mountains in the Punjab, a girl used to be annually sacrificed to an old cedar tree, the families of the village taking it in turn to supply the victim. The tree was cut down not very many years ago. If trees are animate, they are necessarily sensitive, and the cutting of them down becomes a delicate surgical operation, which must be performed with as tender a regard as possible for the feelings of the sufferers, who otherwise may turn and rend the careless or bungling operator. When an oak is being felled, it gives a kind of shrieks or groans that may be heard a mile off, as if it were the genius of the oak lamenting. E. Wilde, Esquire, hath heard it several times. The Objeways very seldom cut down green or living trees, from the idea that it puts them to pain, and some of the medicine men profess to have heard the wailing of the trees under the axe. Trees that bleed and utter cries of pain or indignation when they are hacked or burned occur very often in Chinese books, even in standard histories. Old peasants in some parts of Austria still believe that forest trees are animate, and will not allow an incision to be made in the bark without special cause, 
They have heard from their fathers that the tree feels the cut not less than a wounded man is hurt. In felling a tree they beg its pardon. It is said that in the upper Palatinate, also old woodmen still secretly asks a fine sound tree to forgive them before they cut it down. So in Jarkino the woodman craves pardon of the tree he fells. Before the Ilocanes of Luzon cut down trees in the virgin forest or on the mountains, they recite some verses to the following effect. Be not uneasy, my friend, though we fell what we have been ordered to fell. This they do in order not to draw down on themselves the hatred of the spirits who live in the trees, and who are apt to avenge themselves by visiting with grievous sickness such as injure them wantonly. The Basoga of Central Africa think that, when a tree is cut down, the angry spirit which inhabits it may cause the death of the chief and his family. To prevent this disaster they consult a medicine man before they fell a tree. If the man of skill gives leave to proceed, the woodman first offers a fowl and a goat to the tree. Then, as soon as he has given the first blow with the axe, he applies his mouth to the cut and sucks some of the sap. In this way, he forms a brotherhood with the tree, just as two men become blood brothers by sucking each other's blood. After that, he can cut down his tree brother with impunity. But the spirits of vegetation are not always treated with deference and respect. If fair words and kind treatment do not move them, Stronger measures are sometimes resorted to. The durian tree of the East Indies, whose smooth stem often shoots up to a height of eighty or ninety feet without sending out a branch, bears a fruit of the most delicious flavor and the most disgusting stench. The Malays cultivate the tree for the sake of its fruit, and have been known to resort to a peculiar ceremony for the purpose of stimulating its fertility. Near Jangra in Selangor, there is a small grove of durian trees, and on a special chosen day the villagers used to assemble in it. Thereupon one of the local sorcerers would take a hatchet and deliver several shrewd blows on the trunk of the most barren of the trees, saying, Will you now bear fruit or not? If you do not, I shall fell you. To this the tree replied through the mouth of another man, who had climbed the mangostin tree hard by, the durian tree being unclimbable. Yes, I will now bear fruit. I beg of you not to fell me. So in Japan, to make trees bear fruit, two men go into an orchard. One of them climbs up a tree, and the other stands at the foot with an axe. The man with the axe asks the tree whether it will yield a good crop next year, and threatens to cut it down if it does not. To this the man among the branches replies, on behalf of the tree, that it will bear abundantly. Odd as this mode of horticulture may seem to us, it has its exact parallels in Europe. On Christmas Eve, many a South Slavonian and Bulgarian peasant swings an axe threateningly against the barren fruit tree, while another man standing by intercedes for the menaced tree, saying, Do not cut it down, it will soon bear fruit. Thrice the axe is swung, and thrice the impending blow is arrested at the entreaty of the intercessor. After that, the frightened tree will certainly bear fruit next year. The conception of trees and plants as animated beings naturally results in treating them as male and female, who can be married to each other in a real, and not merely a figurative or poetical sense of the word. The notion is not purely fanciful, for plants like animals have their sexes and reproduce their kind by the union of the male and female elements. But whereas in the higher animals the organs of the two sexes are regularly separated between different individuals, 
In most plants, they exist together in every individual of the species. This rule, however, is by no means universal, and in many species the male plant is distinct from the female. The distinction appears to have been observed by some savages, for we are told that the Maoris are acquainted with the sex of the trees, etc., and have distinct names for the male and female of some trees. The ancients knew the difference between the male and the female date palm, and fertilized them artificially by shaking the pollen of the male tree over the flowers of the female. This fertilization took place in spring. Among the heathen of Harran, the month during which the palms were fertilized bore the name of the date month, and at this time they celebrated the marriage festival of all the gods and goddesses. Different from this true and fruitful marriage of the palm are the false and barren marriages of plants which play a part in Hindu superstition. For example, if a Hindu has planted a grove of mangoes, neither he nor his wife may taste of the fruit until he has formally married one of the trees as a bridegroom to a tree of a different sort, commonly a tamarind tree, which grows near it in the grove. If there is no tamarind to act as a bride, a jasmine will serve the turn. The expenses of such a marriage are often considerable, for the more Brahmans are feasted at it, the greater the glory of the owner of the grove. A family has been known to sell its golden and silver trinkets, and to borrow all the money they could in order to marry a mango tree to a jasmine with due pomp and ceremony. On Christmas Eve, German peasants used to tie fruit trees together with straw ropes to make them bear fruit, saying that the trees were thus married. In the Moluccas, when the clove trees are in blossom, they are treated like pregnant women. No noise may be made near them, no light or fire may be carried past them at night. No one may approach them with his hat on, almost uncovered in their presence. These precautions are observed, lest the tree should be alarmed and bear no fruit, or should drop its fruit too soon, like the untimely delivery of a woman who has been frightened in her pregnancy. So in the east the growing rice crop is often treated with the same considerate regard as a breeding woman. Thus in Amboina, when the rice is in bloom, the people say that it is pregnant, and fire no guns and make no other noises near the field. For fear lest, if the rice were thus disturbed, it would miscarry, and the crop would be all straw and no grain. Sometimes it is the souls of the dead which are believed to animate trees. The Deary tribe of Central Australia regard as very sacred certain trees which are supposed to be their fathers transformed. Hence they speak with reverence of these trees and are careful that they shall not be cut down or burned. If the settlers require them to hew down the trees, they earnestly protest against it, asserting that were they to do so they would have no luck, and might be punished for not protecting their ancestors. Some of the Philippine islanders believe that the souls of their ancestors are in certain trees, which they therefore spare. If they are obliged to fell one of these trees, they excuse themselves to it by saying that it was the priest who made them do it. The spirits take up their abode, by preference, in tall and stately trees, with great spreading branches. When the wind rustles the leaves, the natives fancy it is the voice of the spirit, and they never pass near one of these trees without bowing respectfully, and asking pardon of the spirit for disturbing his repose. Among the Ignorotis, every village has its sacred tree, in which the soul of the dead forefathers of the hamlet reside. Offerings are made to the tree, 
and any injury done to it is believed to entail some misfortune on the village. Were the tree cut down, the village and all its inhabitants would inevitably perish. In Korea, the souls of people who die of the plague or by the roadside, and of women who expire in childbirth, invariably take up their abode in trees. To such spirits, offerings of cake, wine and pork are made on heaps of stones piled under the trees. In China, it has been customary from time immemorial to plant trees on graves in order thereby to strengthen the soul of the deceased, and thus to save his body from corruption, and as the evergreen cypress and pine are deemed to be fuller of vitality than other trees, they have been chosen by preference for this purpose. Hence the trees that grow on graves are sometimes identified with the souls of the departed. Among the Miaokia, an aboriginal race of southern and western China, a sacred tree stands at the entrance of every village, and the inhabitants believe that it is tenanted by the soul of their first ancestor, and that it rules their destiny. Sometimes there is a sacred grove near a village, where the trees are suffered to rot and die on the spot. Their fallen branches cumber the ground, and no one may remove them unless he has first asked leave of the spirit of the tree and offered him a sacrifice. Among the Maraves of southern Africa, the burial ground is always regarded as a holy place, where neither a tree may be felled nor a beast killed because everything there is supposed to be tenanted by the souls of the dead. In most, if not all, of these cases, the spirit is viewed as incorporate in the tree. It animates the tree and must suffer and die with it. But, according to another and probably later opinion, the tree is not the body, but merely the abode of the tree spirit, which can quit it and return to it at pleasure. The inhabitants of Siao, an East Indian island, believe in certain sylvan spirits who dwell in forests or in great solitary trees. At full moon the spirit comes forth from his lurking place and roams about. He has a big head, very long arms and legs, and a ponderous body. In order to propitiate the wood spirits, people bring offerings of food, fowls, goats, and so forth to the places which they are supposed to haunt. The people of Nias think that when a tree dies, its liberated spirit becomes a demon, which can kill a coconut palm by merely lighting on its branches, and can cause the death of all the children in a house by perching on one of the posts that support it. Further, they are of opinion that certain trees are at all times inhabited by rowing demons who, if the trees were damaged, would be set free to go about on errands of mischief. Hence the people respect these trees, and are careful not to cut them down. Not a few ceremonies observed at cutting down haunted trees are based on the belief that the spirits have it in their power to quit the trees at pleasure or in case of need. Thus, when the Pulu islanders are felling a tree, they conjure the spirit of the tree to leave it and settle on another. The wily negro of the slave coast, who wishes to fell an Ashorin tree, but knows that he cannot do so as long as the spirit remains in the tree, places a little palm oil on the ground as a bait, and then when the unsuspecting spirit has quitted the tree to partake of this dainty, hastens to cut down its late abode. When the tobunkus of Celebes are about to clear a piece of forest in order to plant rice, they build a tiny house and furnish it with tiny clothes and some food and gold. Then they call together all the spirits of the wood, offer them the little house with its contents, and beseech them to quit the spot. 
After that they may safely cut down the wood without fearing to wound themselves in so doing. Before the Tomori, another tribe of Celebes, fell a tall tree, they lay a quid of beetle at its foot, and invite the spirit who dwells in the tree to change his lodging. Moreover, they set a little ladder against the trunk to enable him to descend with safety and comfort. The mandalings of Sumatra endeavor to lay the blame of all such misdeeds at the door of the Dutch authorities. Thus, when a man is cutting a road through a forest and has to fell a tall tree which blocks the way, he will not begin to ply his axe until he has said, Spirit who lodgest in this tree, take it not ill that I cut down thy dwelling, for it is done at no wish of mine, but by the order of the controller. And when he wishes to clear a piece of forest land for cultivation, it is necessary that he should come to a satisfactory understanding with the woodland spirits who live there before he lays low their leafy dwellings. For this purpose he goes to the middle of the plot of ground, stoops down, and pretends to pick up a letter. Then, unfolding a bit of paper, he reads aloud an imaginary letter from the Dutch government, in which he is strictly enjoined to set about clearing the land without delay. Having done so, he says, You hear that, spirits? I must begin clearing at once, or I shall be hanged. Even when a tree has been felled, sawn into planks, and used to build a house, it is possible that the woodland spirit may still be lurking in the timber, and accordingly some people seek to propitiate him before or after they occupy a new house. Hence, when a new dwelling is ready, the Turajas of Celebes kill a goat, a pig, or a buffalo, and smear all the woodwork with its blood. If the building is a lobo or spirit house, a fowl or a dog is killed on the ridge of the roof, and its blood allowed to flow down on both sides. The ruder Tonapu, in such a case, sacrifice a human being on the roof. This sacrifice on the roof of a lobo or temple serves the same purpose as the smearing of blood on the woodwork of an ordinary house. The intention is to propitiate the forest spirits who may still be in the timber. They are thus put in good humor and will do the inmates of the house no harm. For a like reason, people in Celebes and the Moluccas are much afraid of planting a post upside down at the building of a house, for the forest spirit, who might still be in the timber, would very naturally resent the indignity and visit the inmates with sickness. The Kayans of Borneo are of opinion that tree spirits stand very stiffly on the point of honor and visit men with their displeasure for any injury done to them. Hence, after building a house, whereby they have been forced to ill-treat many trees, these people observe a period of penance for a year, during which they must abstain from many things, such as the killing of bears, tiger-cats, and serpents. 2. Beneficent Powers of Tree Spirits When a tree comes to be viewed, no longer as the body of the tree spirit, but simply as its abode, which it can quit at pleasure, an important advance has been made in religious thought. Animism is passing into polytheism. In other words, instead of regarding each tree as a living and conscious being, man now sees in it merely a lifeless, inert mass, tenanted for a longer or shorter time by a supernatural being who, as he can pass freely from tree to tree, thereby enjoys a certain right of possession or lordship over the trees, and, ceasing to be a tree soul, becomes a forest god. 
as soon as the tree spirit is thus in a measure disengaged from each particular tree he begins to change his shape and assume the body of a man in virtue of a general tendency of early thought to clothe all abstract spiritual being in concrete human form hence in classical art the sylvan deities are depicted in human shape their wooden character being denoted by a branch or some equally obvious symbol but this change of shape does not affect the essential character of the tree spirit the powers which he exercised as a tree soul incorporate in a tree he still continues to wield as a god of trees this i shall now attempt to prove in detail i shall show first that trees considered as animate beings are credited with the power of making the rain to fall the sun to shine flocks and herds to multiply and women to bring forth easily and second that the very same powers are attributed to tree gods conceived as anthropomorphic beings or as actually incarnate in living men first then trees or tree spirits are believed to give rain and sunshine when the missionary jerome of prague was persuading the heathen lithuanians to fell their sacred groves a multitude of women besought the prince of lithuania to stop him saying that with the woods he was destroying the house of god from which they had been wont to get rain and sunshine the mundaris in assam think that if a tree in the sacred grove is felled the sylvan gods evince their displeasure by withholding rain in order to procure rain the inhabitants of monio a village in the sagaing district of upper burma chose the largest tamarind tree near the village and named it the haunt of the spirit nut who controls the rain then they offered bread coconuts plantains and fowls to the guardian spirit of the village and to the spirit who gives rain and they prayed o lord nut have pity on us poor mortals and stay not the rain inasmuch as our offering is given ungrudgingly let the rain fall day and night afterwards libations were made in honour of the spirit of the tamarind tree and still later three elderly women dressed in fine clothes and wearing necklaces and earrings sang the rain song again tree spirits make the crops to grow amongst the mundaris every village has its sacred grove and the grove deities are held responsible for the crops and are especially honoured at the great agricultural festivals the negroes of the gold coast are in the habit of sacrificing at the foot of certain tall trees and they think that if one of these trees were felled all the fruits of the earth would perish the gallas dance in couples around sacred trees praying for a good harvest every couple consists of a man and woman or linked together by a stick of which each holds one end under their arms they carry green corn or grass swedish peasants stick a leafy branch in each furrow of their cornfields believing that this will ensure an abundant crop the same idea comes out in the german and french custom of the harvest may this is a large branch or a whole tree which is decked with ears of corn brought home on the last wagon from the harvest field and fastened on the roof of the farmhouse or of the barn where it remains for a year Manhart has proved that this branch or tree embodies the tree spirit conceived as the spirit of vegetation in general whose vivifying and fructifying influence is thus brought to bear upon the corn in particular hence in swabia the harvest maize fastened amongst the last stalks of corn left standing on the field in other places it is planted on the cornfield and the last sheaf cut is attached to its trunk 
Again, the tree spirit makes the herds to multiply and blesses women with offspring. In northern India, the Emblica officinalis is a sacred tree. On the 11th of the month, Palgun, February, libations are poured at the foot of the tree, a red or yellow string is bound about its trunk, and prayers are offered to it for the fruitfulness of women, animals, and crops. Again, in northern India, the coconut is esteemed one of the most sacred fruits, and is called Sri Pala, or the fruit of Sri, the goddess of prosperity. It is a symbol of fertility, and all through Upper India is kept in shrines and presented by the priests to women who desire to become mothers. In the town of Kua, near Old Calabar, they used to grow a palm tree which ensured conception to any barren woman who ate a nut from its branches. In Europe, the May tree, or maypole, is apparently supposed to possess similar powers over both women and cattle. Thus, in some parts of Germany on the 1st of May, the peasants set up may-trees or may-bushes at the doors of stables and byres, one for each horse and cow. This is thought to make the cows yield more milk. Of the Irish we are told that they fancy a green bough of a tree, fastened on May Day against the house, will produce plenty of milk that summer. On the 2nd of July, some of the Wends used to set up an oak tree in the middle of the village, with an iron cock fastened to its top. Then they danced round it, and drove the cattle round it to make them thrive. The Circassians regard the pear tree as the protector of cattle. So they cut down a young pear tree in the forest, branch it, and carry it home, where it is adorned as a divinity. Almost every house has one such pear tree. In autumn, on the day of the festival, the tree is carried into the house with great ceremony to the sound of music and amid the joyous cries of old inmates, who compliment it on its fortunate arrival. It is covered with candles, and a cheese is fastened to its top. Round about it they eat, drink, and sing. Then they bid the tree goodbye and take it back into the courtyard, where it remains for the rest of the year, set up against the wall, without receiving any mark of respect. In the Tuhoa tribes of Maoris, the power of making women fruitful is ascribed to trees. These trees are associated with the navel strings of definite mythical ancestors, as indeed the navel strings of all children used to be hung upon them down to quite recent times. A barren woman has to embrace such a tree with her arms, and she received a male or a female child according as she embraced the east or the west side. The common European custom of placing a green bush on a May Day before or on the house of beloved maiden probably originated in the belief of the fertilizing power of the tree spirits. In some parts of Bavaria, such bushes are set up also at the houses of newly married pairs, and the practice is only omitted if the wife is near her confinement, for in that case they say that the husband has set up a May bush for himself. Among the South Slavonians, a barren woman, who desires to have a child, places a new chemise upon a fruitful tree on the eve of St. George's Day. Next morning before sunrise, she examines the garment, and if she finds that some living creature has crept on it, she hopes that her wish will be fulfilled within the year. Then she puts on the chemise, confident that she will be as fruitful as the tree on which the garment has passed the night. Among the Karakirghis, barren women roll themselves on the ground under a solitary apple tree in order to obtain offspring. Lastly, the power of granting to women an easy delivery at childbirth is ascribed to trees both in Sweden and Africa. 
In some districts of Sweden there was formerly a bard trade or guardian tree, lime, ash, or elm, in the neighborhood of every farm. No one would pluck a single leaf of the sacred tree, any injury to which was punished by ill luck or sickness. Pregnant women used to clasp the tree in their arms in order to ensure an easy delivery. In some Negro tribes of the Congo region, pregnant women make themselves garments out of the bark of a certain sacred tree, because they believe that this tree delivers them from the dangers that attend childbearing. The story that Leto clasped the palm tree and an olive tree, or two laurel trees, when she was about to give birth to the divine twins Apollo and Artemis, perhaps points to a similar Greek belief in the efficacy of certain trees to facilitate delivery. End of chapter 9 Recording by Monsbro, Helsingfors, Finland